0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The movie Tar is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Actress for my guest, Kate Blanchett, and Best Director and Best Screenwriter for my guest, Todd Field. Tar is also nominated for Best Picture. But wait, there's more. For her performance in the film, Blanchette has already won a Golden Globe and a BAFTA, the British equivalent of an Oscar. Tar is the fourth film in movie history to win Best Picture from the major film critics associations in New York, L.A., and London, as well as the National Society of Film Critics. Blanchette is the only actress to have won all of those awards, and she did it twice. She's already won two Oscars for her performances in Blue Jasmine and The Aviator, in which he played Katherine Hepburn. She was nominated for her performance in Carol. This is Todd Field's first film in 16 years, after Little Children and In the Bedroom, which were both nominated for an Oscar. He's been at work, but those screenplays never got made. In Tar, Blanchette plays Lydia Tar, a superstar of the classical music world. She's an American conductor who has led several top American orchestras and for the past seven years has been based in Berlin, conducting one of the greatest orchestras in the world. Her career has reached a new peak. She's about to record Mahler's Fifth Symphony after having recorded all his others, and her memoir is about to be published. It's rare for an out lesbian to have this stature in the classical music world, But questions have been raised about whether she uses her power to take sexual advantage of young women she is mentoring. The movie asks a lot of questions about power and its abuse, cancel culture, how actions can be misinterpreted or misrepresented, and whether bad behavior should cancel the art as well as the artist. Our film critic Justin Chang says, But tar is too subtly thoughtful and complex to be reduced to mere talking points. And Blanchette's performance also resists easy categorization. With her mix of charisma, ferocity, and occasional tenderness, she shows us both Lydia Tarr the Magnificent Artist and Lydia Tar, the Monstrous Human Being, and makes it impossible for us to separate the two. Let's start with a scene from early in the film when Lydia Tar is teaching a class at Juilliard. A student named Max has been conducting an atonal piece that leaves Tar unimpressed. She thinks the music sounds like violins tuning up and that the student isn't bringing a point of view to the music. After she asks Max a question about Bach, he says he really isn't into Bach. Here's her response. Have you ever played or, or conducted Bach?
1: Honestly, as a BIPOC, pan-gender
0: person, I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of... Impossible for me to take his music seriously.
2: Um, Come on. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, didn't he sire like... 20 kids?
2: Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. But I'm sorry, I'm... I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. Sure. Whatever. That's that's your choice. I mean, after all, a soul selects her own society. But remember, the flip side of that selection closes the valves of one's attention. Now, of course, siloing what is acceptable or not acceptable is a basic construct of many, if not most, symphony orchestras today who see it as their imperial right to curate for the Cretans. So slippery as it is, there is some merit in examining Max's Allergy. Can classical music written by a bunch of straight, Austro-German church-going white guys exalt us? Individually, as, as, as well as collectively. And who, may I ask, gets to decide that? You know, what about Beethoven? You into him? Because for me, as a U-Haul lesbian, I'm, I'm not too sure about old Ludwig. But then I face him. And I find myself nose-to-nose with his magnitude and inevitability.
0: Kate Blanchett, Todd Field, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations on your awards and the nominations in the film. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
0: I think neither of you were deep into classical music before this film. And, Todd, you're a jazz musician, trombone. That was like your first profession, I think. So why did you want to set this movie in the classical music world? And I realize you could have set it in the business world and or the sports world because it's really about power. Um, but tell me more about why you wanted to make this movie set in the classical music world.
3: Well, I really didn't. Um, I mean, I had this character. <laughs> okay. Well, I had this character, you know... Um, if you're lucky enough to be paid to write for a living, and I read a statistic in Variety, I don't know, 10 years ago, that said if you're being paid as a screenwriter, you have a better chance of starting in an MBA lineup. You know? <laughs> um, so I feel very lucky to to have been able to keep my lights on for the last few years. And in this case, I was very, very lucky. The studio came to me and said, would you ever be interested in writing a film about a conductor in a, you know, uh, with classical music? And I, I thought about it, and I had this character Lydia Tarr sitting you know in a notebook and I thought ah okay she was a top you know a media company or something I think I had her and this is a perfect power structure if we really want to ask these questions about what is power you know what how does power corrupt all of these things um it kind of fits into a frame quite neatly so I I had that was how she became a conductor pure and simple and in terms of my background in classical music is zilch you know other than a um a passing interest, like most people, in having certain favorites, and you know ironically, you know the world had just locked down. It was the middle of March two thousand twenty, and orchestras couldn 't play, and conductors couldn 't conduct, so we were all captive um, and In this case, I was very lucky to be able to have the tutelage of John Moucheri, who had been Leonard Bernstein 's assistant for nineteen years, who taught at Yale and also handily had been the conductor for the L.A. Phil for movie nights at, at the Hollywood Bowl. So he had a more than a passing acquaintance about movie making and wasn't bothered like a lot of people in class of mu- musical would be, you know, by by some hedonist like me asking them a lot of funny questions. Um, and so I I spoke to him for about three weeks. Um, he pointed me in the right direction, so he gave me like a little mini master class, and then I wrote the script.
2: But orchestral music and the way it's made is going inside those... Systems, um, as they have traditionally existed, they're, they're environments of immense discipline and control, and very hierarchical. And who has access to conduct that music is based on that that character's legacy and their their history, and more than frequently, <laughs> um, their gender. So it was the perfect place to to place a character who is incredibly disciplined, who has devoted their life to, to their passions and probably has, as a result, has become quite inept at life. And also somebody who is
0: obsessed
2: with um, and, and thinks that she can control how she's uh, perceived and how she moves through the world.
0: So, Kate, I want to talk with you about conducting. One of the pieces that you conduct in TAR is Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which you're preparing to record for the prestigious record label Deutsche Grammophon. And um, I want to play the opening of the first movement in C-sharp minor and then talk to you about this music and w- what it's like to conduct it or at least to you know, act like <laughs> you're conducting it in the movie. So here's the music. So, Kate Blanchett, what is the feeling for you of someone who isn't really a conductor but is playing one? What is the feeling like when when you're conducting and the horn opening ends and the orchestra makes an incredibly powerful entrance?
2: Yes. Well, I mean, conducting is a form of alchemy um, and having watched hours and hours of – Many, many different conductors in rehearsal and in performance. Because, of course, I was preparing um, during the pandemic, so there wasn't the opportunity to go and absorb this music live. Um, nothing can prepare you for the charge that, that moves through you when you get the downbeat and the sound happens. And particularly with Mahler, I mean, it's a, as you you know we've all just heard it's it's magnificent and timeless.
0: So, what are you doing physically as a conductor at that point when the orchestra comes in?
2: Breathing, <laughs> the same thing you, the same thing you do when you're when you stand on stage. Um, you know, um, Bernstein says you know that the that you 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 prepare with an inhalation, and the music sounds as exhalation. And like anything, when you know when you're speaking words or you're you know conducting is a form of um, deep communication, and you have at your arsenal your your fingertips, your hands, your arms, your your chest, your facial postures, all of this is a form of communication in order to elicit um, sound. So, um, And also, of course, this is, as Todd said, this is not a film about conducting, nor is it a performance film. You see the music being made, which we made with the Dresden Philharmonic Orchestra, um, it's being made in rehearsal. So I know for many hours on stage, the way you rehearse something is quite different a process to, to actually then going to perform it. So we see something being found um, or trying to discover something.
0: I realize the movie isn't about classical music. It's about power and about cancellation and abuse of power. However, you play somebody who is obsessed with classical music. That is her life. Um, So did you fall in love with the music that you had to learn for the movie?
2: I think the character is um, obsessed with sound, in our sort of backstory for her, she grew up in quite a silent household and so music was a life raft for her. So in a way, it's it's a kind of a, a lifelong obsession with sound. So every single sound can set her off. I think a lot of conductors I spoke to, that gift, that heightened awareness of, of sound, of acoustics, um, can also be a curse because it means that, you know, sounds in everyday life can can derail them.
0: Is, is that true that a lot of conductors... Have that issue? I didn't. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. yeah I was speaking to Simone Young, and um, you know, if she's in a new hall and the acoustics off, then you have to re-rehearse something, or you know, I not I know that from being on stage. You know that you know that the person in you know the eighth row seat G has just opened opened a wrapper, uh, a and you it it shifts you off your axis slightly. You have to have a you know a three dimensional sense of the space and the sounds that you are making within it.
0: So, Todd, why did you choose Mahler's Fifth as the musical centerpiece of the film?
3: Well, that, again, that came out of conversations with John Maceri. He'd asked me, um, do you have a favorite piece of classical music? Because I said that this character, I wanted her to be, uh, as Kate said, in rehearsal for this sort of final sort of piece of uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a whole. In this case, all of Mahler's symphonies and saving the fifth for, for the end. Um, and. I was hesitant to do that because um, it's so well-known um, and John said, you're being silly. Uh, there's a reason it's so well-known. It's important. Um, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't hesitate and this is why. He had just conducted it recently and he sort of unpacked it. Um, and what John said and actually um, we had a similar conversation with Gustavo Dudamel uh, last week it's almost as if it was written for the film. I mean, it has everything. It starts out that first movement you just played is the trial march. That's the funeral march. Um, And the very first thing she does is she tries to put that sort of call of, of that funeral march further away from herself. She puts it off stage, right, you know? Um, And, and then, and there's a storm, you know, and then there's a, and then there's a, there's a love story. There's all these sort of things. It's a very, very theatrical piece that Mahler kind of sits you deeply, deeply in and then sort of demands your attention. So, um, of all of the, his symphonies and it's hard to pick your favorite, um, it was clear that the fifth was the one.
0: I have another um, clip I want to play. Early in the interview we heard a clip where Tar is telling her student who doesn't like Bach because as a BIPOC pan-gender person he thinks that Bach is just too
3: Misogynist. Misogynistic,
0: yes. Um, so, at, at this point, she's sitting at the piano and playing Bach for him, and kind of talking him through what's happening in this excerpt of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And I want to play this excerpt from the film.
2: Come on, Max, indulge me. Let's allow Bach a similar gaze. Now, this is all filigree, right? I mean, it could be a first-year piano student. Mm -mm. Or Schroeder playing for Lucy. Or Glenn Gould, for that matter. (laughs) Now, it's not until it changes, you get inside it, that you hear what it really is. It's a question. an answer which begs another question there's a humility in Bach he's not pretending he's certain about anything because he knows that it's always the question that involves the listener it's never the answer right now the big question for you is what do you think Max
1: You play really well.
0: <laughs> okay. So that's a scene from Tar. So uh, let me start with you, Todd. Um, I know you said that you um, studied with John Maceri while um, preparing this movie. He's the former conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and has conducted a lot of film scores. And he gave you a lot of advice about classical music. Was it he who suggested that Bach is like, his music is like a series of questions?
3: Well, I I think, uh, uh, you know, it's a point-counterpoint piece. Um, We're making this thing to ask questions. We're making this thing to invite the viewer to answer them for themselves, however they answer them, you know. Um, uh, So we have to leave room for them. And thematically, we may as well lay that out right here musically, point-counterpoint, point-counterpoint, change, point-counterpoint, change, right? So – it was a very, very simple uh, idea of, of sort of exploiting the pattern of that music to to have her try to make a point about Bach who's being um, dismissed by the student, right? Um, it's one of her many tactics until she uh, loses her tactics and ultimately loses the scene because she loses her temper with him.
0: Kate, so you studied piano as an adult. I think it's really hard to learn an instrument as an adult. Now, you didn't have to be you know, a a concert pianist or anything, but you did, I think you, that really is you at the piano playing in the film, right?
3: Yes. That is her playing. Yes. Note for note. She's, and she's going to tell you the story, which is that she's still angry at me because I'm not showing her hands.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I honestly, when I saw the movie, I thought, oh, they're not showing her hands because she can't play and she's not really playing. So why didn't you show her hands?
3: I didn't show her hands because when you go back and you look at, say, Leonard Bernstein and any number of – whether it's the unanswered questions or young people's concerts, the camera is trained at at Leonard Bernstein, not at his hands because none of us need to prove that he plays the piano. It's only in movies where you you try to prove like the last brush stroke on a painting or showing an actor's hands and it becomes a dog act, you know, Um, and I wanted to just make it a a fact – you know um i didn't i didn't want people watching her fingers i wanted them watching her eyes
0: kate my question for you is like so you had to learn how to play you know reasonably credibly but learn as an adult what was the process like learning as an adult it's had you ever played piano before did did you know how to read music
2: uh well i'd learned as a girl um and with every subsequent pregnancy i said i was going to go back and pick up the piano again. But the sad, indictment, <laughs> or the sad indictment on me is that I never really pick these things up until I'm forced to because of work. So it was a joy. It was an absolute joy to return to the piano.
0: Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guests are Todd Field, who wrote and directed the film Tar, and Kate Blanchett, the film Star. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air.
1: Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh
3: Air.
0: And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air.
3: We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter.
2: It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place.
3: It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh
0: Air. You can subscribe by going to WHYY.org slash Fresh Air.
3: You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show.
0: Let's get back to my interview with Todd Field, who wrote and directed the film Tar, and Kate Blanchett, the film's star. She plays a world-renowned American conductor who, for the past seven years, has been the conductor of an orchestra in Berlin, one of the world's greatest orchestras. She's at the peak of her career, about to record Mahler's Fifth, the only Mahler symphony she hasn't yet recorded, and her memoir is about to be published. But there are questions about whether she's used her power to flirt and more with some of the young women she's mentored. Tara is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Blanchette, and Best Screenplay and Best Director for Field. So, Kate Blanchett, were there movies or theater productions that made you want to act, and not just kind of play act at home, but actually made you think like I want, I want to spend my life doing this?
2: I remember I saw um, they shoot horses, don't they? Um, When I was quite young and I was just – I just found it so utterly uh, absorbing. I've been quite obsessed by um, that sort of – and then when I was at high school, turned it into a a school play. I was so obsessed with it. (laughs) Oh,
0: really? That's a Depression era. I mean it's set during the Depression and it's about like dance marathon where like the winner – who's still standing after everybody has kind of dropped out of exhaustion, gets a cash prize and everybody needed cash during the Depression. Jane Fonda was one of the stars.
2: Yes, amazing performance. (laughs) So
0: you did that in high school?
2: Yeah, we we did it um, in the round. And we did it, um, yeah, I did it in uh, my final year of school. I directed the production. I've just been obsessed with the story. I think it's so, I'd love to see a production now, so um, relevant and dynamic. But yeah, and um, I, when I was young, um, I think I was seven, my, my parents took me to a production of The Mikado. And, um, the, there's a very celebrated, very naughty actor called Frank Thring who was playing the Emperor. And his moustache fell off. And I don't know, he gave some aside about it. You know, he turned it over, picked the moustache up and said, oh, made in Japan. And it, it was just that <laughs> off the cuff <laughs> remark that mm-hmm. I thought, oh, Suddenly the performance had stopped and I wanted to be on the stage because I felt they were all incredibly naughty and having an enormous amount of fun.
0: Did growing up in Australia make movie making seem very distant?
2: Oh, God, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you you think about the Australian uh, film industry in the 70s and 80s and my God, was it dynamic. There were so many. Um, I mean, some of the world's great cinematographers come out of Australia um, o- o- over that period. No, I, it was really electric. Um, and we, at that time, were really engaged in consuming our own cinematic cultural product. Um, and it was uh, – you know, it was interesting when, say, a film like Mad Max came to the States, there was talk about whether it needed to be subtitled. I
0: think Oh, right, I think yeah. that has changed. That has changed. Were you ever near one of the movie sets or were any of them – any of those films like shot in your neighborhood? No.
2: I think Neighbours – the um the television series was shot not far from where I lived. no, no i was I was very busy on my bike pretending I was Nancy drew, so i I just <laughs> solving mysteries that I'd kind of half invented myself. Where did that mattress come from? You no know, that's was how I spent my childhood but then i I grew up with terrestrial channels, so I have incredibly eclectic taste as a result. I would come midway through movies um and try and then reverse engineer how the how the characters got there and um. Yeah, so – but no, I never expected to be in the film industry, not because the Australian industry wasn't vital, just because I didn't think it was something that one could do with one's life.
0: I know your father died of a heart attack when you were 10. How did that affect your sense of self-sufficiency or insecurity?
2: Oh, it was pivotal, monumental. I mean, life-changing. I mean, children – tend to absorb, for better or for worse, uh, traumatic events that happen to them in their childhood and they often don't um, become articulated or conscious and think until you, you, later in life. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in profound ways... It, 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 uh, it, it changed probably the course of my life. I probably wouldn't be here right now. I probably wouldn't have been an actor. You know, I mean, who knows? Why,
0: why, why do you think you might not have been an actor?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I certainly ran away from it for a long time. Um, because I, f- I felt it was such a, an in- insecure profession, which of course it is, unstable, uncertain. And I think maybe that's why actors are, are good at, you know, um, navigating changing landscape because it's, it's, a, such an uncertain profession. But I thought I needed to do something more secure with my life because I'd seen how, you know, financially insecure um, we, we were as a family as a result of my father's death.
0: If you're just joining us, my guests are Kate Blanchett, star of the movie Tar, and Todd Field, who wrote and directed the film. They're both nominated for Oscars, as is the film itself. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Kate Blanchett and Todd Field. Blanchett stars in the film Tar as a world-famous conductor who may be on the verge of being canceled. Todd Field wrote and directed the film. It's nominated for several Oscars, including Best Film, Best Leading Actress, Best Screenwriter, and Best Director. Maren Alsop has weighed in on on the film because there's parallels between Alsop's life and Lydia Tarr's. Uh, They're both conductors who were mentored by Leonard Bernstein. They're both women. They're both lesbians, and they're both... um, Alsop is married to a woman musician, and Lydia Tarr, I think they're just partners. I'm not sure if they're married. Um, So here's what Marion Alsop says. So many superficial aspects of Tarr seem to align with my own personal life, but once I saw it, I was offended. I was offended as a woman. I was offended as a conductor. I was offended as a lesbian. To have an opportunity to portray a woman in that role... And to make her an abuser, for me that was heartbreaking. I think all women and all feminists should be bothered by that kind of depiction. There are so many men, actual documented men, this film could have been based on, but instead it puts a woman in that role, but gives her all the attributes of those men. That feels anti-woman. To assume that women will either behave identically to men, or become hysterical, crazy, insane, is to perpetuate something We've already seen on film so many times before, Todd Field. I'd love to hear your reaction to that.
3: It's an incredible statement, and I appreciate it. I think that it's a really important conversation to have. It's part of why we made the film, and people—some people were bound to be offended. I mean, in terms of Marin Alsop, she's a storied um, trailblazer. She is—you uh, know—she was a first. Uh, of a very, very still, tiny subset of female conductors. You know, as she says, any relationship to her is superficial. Um, I mean, I'm in the masquerade business, so um, I'm not... I wasn't interested in making a, you know, public service announcement about the evils of, you know, bad conductors or or people abusing power in the classical music sphere. This is, a, this is about a character, and it's about the corrupting force of nature, and, you know, unfortunately, I... Firmly believe that whoever holds power, it's going to corrupt them. I mean, that's a, just a, an unfortunate fact. We're part animal, you know. Sometimes uh, the animal takes over our better angels. So, we've spoken to many female conductors at the top of their game that love the film, and they love the film because of these uh, of the conversation that it inspires. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. I, I, you know, I could pick apart what she said, but it, that's hardly the point and it's really not my place to do that.
0: Todd, let me ask you, you started off as a jazz musician um, and your your instrument was trombone. Why, why trombone?
3: Well, my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, when I was going to take band, she told me, um, and I believed her, that the most attractive instrument, because uh, she liked to watch Lawrence Welk that show um was the trombone and that if I played it that I might get a girlfriend Um, (laughs) (laughs) that that wasn't true (laughs) um so yeah I took it up it's a very very um you know it's a very uh, challenging instrument uh and um but I fell in love with it pretty hard and uh and it's how I met my best friend over the fence who he was a trumpet player I heard him playing on the other side of the fence one day um and that became an r- in, intensely important friendship for me and also kind of propelled me into, into falling, you know, deeply in love with jazz. So I went to school uh, on a music scholarship and, uh, you know, followed someone into, into the theater department and found myself changing majors pretty quickly. So that's, that's in, in brief.
0: Were uh, you, were you in a small group or a big band? What was the repertoire you played?
3: Oh, I, I played everything. I mean, we played in small groups. Uh, we would sit in, you know, Portland. I was from Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Oregon, you know, was sort of um, a uh, required stop in a dying art form uh, at that time. You know, jazz was really on fumes. So every we saw everyone there because there were only so many places for for players to come to, and. I believe it was the first year or maybe one of the first years of of a a very storied jazz festival in Oregon called the Mount Hood uh, Jazz Festival, which is based at Mount Hood Community Colleges, which is where I went when I was in high school and played in their big band. Their big band was run by this incredible individual named Larry McVeigh, Um, and it was a sort of necessary stopover for Stan um, Kenton. He used to hire players out of that community college band, so it attracted a huge amount of um, people. That otherwise would never go near uh, such a small college, and it won the Berkeley Jazz Festival a couple of years in a row um, when I was a player in it.
0: Another thing I want to ask you about: um, when you were maybe in your early teens or younger than that, you'd, you'd let me know you were a bat boy for a minor league team in Portland, the Portland Mavericks. How do you get to be a bat boy?
3: Prayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a storied team. It was the only independent baseball team in existence, professional independent baseball team in existence. Um, Bing Russell uh, and his son, Kurt Russell, the Kurt Russell we all know and love, had um, come to Portland in 1973, rather, um, and they had bought that franchise. It had been abandoned by the Portland Beavers, which had been a major league farm club for decades. Um, And... The whole town went crazy and if you were a young person, um, that would have been your dream. Um, But mainly what it was is I went to this camp that they ran for children on the side called Little Mavericks, L-I-L apostrophe Mavericks, run by the pitching coach, uh, Rob Nelson. And Rob um, is an incredible person um, full of an amazing sort of uh, energy – um, and and he kind of changed my life in many ways. He also ended up dating my sister, um, Maggie. And, uh, and and so he basically grabbed me and pulled me into tryouts. And every year, Bing and Kurt would do tryouts on June 1st, which meant that it didn't matter who you were. If you weren't signed, uh, you could come from – you could be any age – from any nationality, people came from all over the world to try out for this ball club, and then Bing would make a team out of these guys. and And so I showed up for the tryouts, and and he hired me. You know, as a bat boy.
0: So you traveled on the road with ball players.
3: Yeah, right. I did.
0: What are some of the behavior and language you were exposed to? Um
3: all manner, all manner of behavior, yeah, and anything you could possibly imagine in 1977 uh in a school bus with men who were uh, on average um in their 30s um and who had um had many lives some of whom had been in prison um uh, someone who, you know, had been um, lauded in other areas, one of whom had written one of the important sports books of all time, Jim Bouton, Ball Four, um, and he pitched for the Yankees in the World Series. Um, yeah, I was exposed to a lot. You know, my parents were very trusting. They wanted me to have my own interior life, and, um, uh, and I sure did.
0: Do you think that that helped you? Um, in being a a, a a movie writer, because you were exposed to lives very different from yours, you heard dialogue that was different from what you'd hear with with your friends when you were growing up.
3: Probably, I bet I, I would say that about every aspect of of someone's life. I mean, I think what it what what affected me mostly was that I was around these men who loved doing what they were doing, were paid nothing for it and that it was worth their time and that they were yes people. I think it was, it's really important to be acquainted with yes people. Uh, there was all kinds of reasons for them not to be playing on that team. There was no money. They, they had to scrape by and they did it because they were compelled to play ball and they beat everyone. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, they won. You know, it was a winning situation under the most scotch-tape circumstances.
0: One last question. I know you've had to do a lot of interviews um, for TAR, and I'm grateful that you did this one. Is it hard after you've finished a work to then have to talk about it a lot with people like me? And I don't mean that like – I just mean like is it hard to have to keep talking about it? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it 's easy it 's easy to
2: to talk about something that you really love, and the process of working with Todd and you know interfacing with the screenplay and the world in which it 's set um, at this particular time in human history was an unrepeatably wonderful experience and um i 've been overjoyed by the multivarious responses to it um and how Random and varied the questions are that people have. You know, people who've seen the film who know nothing about classical music, um, and who are 22 and have seen the film four, five, six times and still have questions. Things that I thought, oh my goodness, I had only had only hoped you'd pick that up. You know, so, so yes and no. I mean, I, there's a, always a reticence for me, you know, um, to talk about it too much because I don't want to interfere with the audience's experience of it. Um, so that would be my only <laughs> hesitation. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Yeah, and there's a, there's a danger at a certain point where, um, where you've been talking about it so much that, that you do get in the way of the thing. You know, the thing is meant, again, that it's an invitation and to not get in the way of that invitation. I mean, I will say, you know, uh, two weeks ago I was up in Santa Barbara and um, – you know, it was for directors. And for directors, the press line um, is very different than the press line, say, for actors. And uh, Martin McDonough and I were up there, and the whole press line was children. They were all young people from middle school and high school journalism departments, and they were interviewing us. And those questions were extraordinary. Yeah, those questions, Yeah, questions that I had never been asked in but six like months.
0: What? Like what? Mm.
3: Um, well... Uh, one young man asked me, um, who was your guiding light when, in, in classical music, who, who got you the most excited of anyone ever, you know? And that's such a, that's an important question. Um, that's like saying, who's your favorite baseball player, you know? And that opened up a, a conversation to be able to talk about Leonard Bernstein, you know, and... And and, and this, this person, this young man, had never heard of Leonard Bernstein and be able to tell him where and how and why he might want to experience, you know, um, that just incredible enthusiasm that was Leonard Bernstein and how that might help him to think about concert music differently and, and not make it feel like it's some strange, dusty thing, you know.
0: Right. I want to thank you both so much and congratulate you again on all the awards and nominations. Um, So thank you so much for spending time with us on our show. I really appreciate it. Thank
3: Thank you, you, Terry. Thank
0: you, Terry. Kate Blanchett is nominated for an Oscar for her starring role in Tar. Todd Field is nominated for Oscars for writing and directing the film. Tar is also nominated for Best Picture. After we take a short break... Marine Corrigan will review the new novel by Rebecca Mackay, whose previous novel, The Great Believers, was about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. This is Fresh Air. Rebecca Mackay's novel, The Great Believers, about the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. Mackay's latest novel, I Have Some Questions For You, may seem markedly different given that it's set in the closed community of a New England boarding school, But our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, says here, too, larger social problems emerge. Here's her review.
1: Edgar Allan Poe, the creator of the modern mystery, was on to something when he declared that the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world. That weird and repugnant statement appeared over a century and a half ago in an essay called The Philosophy of Composition. But Poe could be talking about the popularity of true crime podcasts and documentaries in our own day. True crime's troubling obsession with the deaths of beautiful young women translates, if not always into poetry, more predictably into high ratings. Rebecca Mackay is well aware of the ick factor inherent in the subject of her new novel called I Have Some Questions For You. Her main character, a middle-aged film professor and podcaster named Bodie Kane, returns to the New Hampshire boarding school she attended as an alienated scholarship student to teach a mini-course on podcasting. Bodie has made a name for herself with her podcast called Starlet Fever, which she describes as being about dead and disenfranchised women in early Hollywood, about a system that would toss women out like old movie sets. The subject of her podcast, along with her teaching stint at Granby, as the school is called, stir up Bodie's memories of the death of her junior year roommate, a beautiful and popular girl named Thalia Keith, whose broken, bloodied body was found in the school pool. An athletic trainer named Omar Evans, one of the few people of color at the school back in the 1990s was quickly arrested and convicted of the murder. But rumors linger, especially about a mysterious older man in Thalia's life. Semi-hip to her own self-interested motives, Bodhi proposes Thalia's murder as a possible research topic to her class of wannabe podcasters. One zealous female student, after voicing concerns about fetishizing violent death, takes on the assignment, just the way so many of us, after mulling over similar scruples, immerse ourselves into those true crime podcasts and documentaries, or into this vastly entertaining novel about a fictional murder case. I Have Some Questions for You is both a thickly plotted, character-driven mystery and a stylishly self-aware novel of ideas. It's being rightfully compared to Donna Tartt's 1992 blockbuster debut, The Secret History, because of its New England campus setting and because of the haunting voiceover that frames both novels. Listen, for instance, to these fragments from Bodie's incantatory introduction. You've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance, to the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool, to the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement, the one where she went to the frat party, the one where he'd been watching her jog every day? No, it was the one with the swimming pool, that one, because what is she now but a story, a story to know or not know, a story with a limited set of details, a story to master, by memorizing maps and timelines. Of course, in the decades since TART's groundbreaking campus mystery appeared, the internet has happened throughout i have some questions for you the internet and its veritable flash mob of amateur online columbos is a constantly intrusive character posting videos and generating red herrings and other theories about thalia's murder some of this material even changes the direction of the investigation launched by bodie and her students that investigation is almost derailed when, at a crucial moment, Bodhi's estranged husband becomes the focus of a Me Too accusation that threatens her own reputation as an advocate for women. How do you tease out the facts, this novel insistently asks, from a subjective thicket of bias, wavering memories, groupthink, and gossip? And how much does the form your investigation takes, in this case a podcast, determine which details are spotlighted and which ones are ditched because they don't make a dramatic enough story? Don't worry. Mackay has not settled here for one of those open-ended ruminations on the impossibility of ever finding the truth. That kind of postmodern ending has worn out its welcome. But in a twist worthy of Poe, Mackay suggests that the truth alone may not set you free or lay spirits to rest.
0: Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Rebecca Mackay's new novel, I Have Some Questions For You. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about how QAnon and its conspiracy theories have changed American politics and changed the life of a journalist who's been covering QAnon from its start. Our guest will be Will Sommer, author of the new book, Trust the Plan. He grew up in a conservative Texas family that always listened to Rush Limbaugh. He left those politics behind, but started reporting on the far right, including QAnon. His investigations into QAnon made him one of their targets. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yacundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.